Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Robin Oliveira started writing her first book after she saw a ghost. Yes, quite literally. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Robin talks about the unusual visitation she had that wouldn't let her rest and prompted so many questions she had to write a book to answer them. She also tells us what she'd do differently if she was starting out all over again. But before we talk to Robin, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Robin's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Robin. Hello there, Robin, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thank you for having me. And beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided that you wanted to write fiction and your life would be a disappointment if you didn't do it? And if so, was there a catalyst for it? Um, I did not have that I can put my finger on uh, in terms of thinking that needed to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer. I, I meet a lot of writers who say they absolutely wanted to be a writer from the, you know, the moment they knew that what books were. But for me, I was a reader. I loved books. I spent my childhood reading. I spent a lot of my adulthood reading in my private time. And uh, it was uh, after I had my children, uh, I was a registered nurse and I stayed home and I thought, well, I, I, uh, I can either go back to nursing or I can try to write a book. And when my son went off to kindergarten, that was when I started to teach, try to teach myself how to write. And I finally ended up in um, a community college program and then the University of Washington Extension here in Seattle. They have a lovely program for writers. So it was a gradual process but mostly I became a writer because I love books. Yes and what made you choose historical fiction as your genre? You were attracted to that area obviously. Well I'm, um, I'm, I'm very drawn to the 19th century. Uh, I'm drawn to uh, also the 18th century. I, I'm very fond of novels of Jane Austen and George Eliot and that's part of it. But I think the other thing is that I was drawn into historical fiction by the first character I ever wrote. And as odd as it sounds, uh, she appeared to me one day. Now, this is only this has never happened to me before or since that experience. But I was dusting my dining room and a woman in 19th century dress appeared to me looking through a she was looking through a microscope. She had medical books behind her. She was seated at a trestle table. She was wearing a dress, and uh, I started to investigate uh, what she, you know, what what a person, a woman of that 
era would be doing um, in that. And I just learned that she um, learned that women became physicians out of their experiences in the Civil War. And so then my first book was set in the 19th century in America. And I learned so much about the era that I just wanted to learn more. So I kept setting my books there. That's such a remarkable experience that I'd just like to focus on it for a moment. Had you been reading anything about Civil War nurses or, or, or had anything particularly in your mind when this this vision appeared or this uh, apparition appeared? No, absolutely not. I knew very little about the Civil War. I am a registered nurse, so um, there's that association. But no, I, I knew... I knew practically nothing about the American Civil War. I I knew very little about the 19th century when I started, um, when I had that particular moment. And was it a frightening moment? No, it's just one of those things, you know. I just quick apparition, and then and then it was gone, and it just it led me down this path to write the stories of women who became physicians in the Civil War, which is a story that had not yet been told in, in American history. Yeah, and it's marvellous, absolutely marvellous. So your heroine in that first book was Mary Sutter. Um, I'm sure she was a fictional character, but there were 17 or more women who started out in the Civil War as nurses or maybe just as volunteers who ended up training as either doctors or more experienced nurses, I gather. Yes, absolutely. So some women were just uh, just called, felt called to go to battlefields and help, and they were volunteers. Um, Dorothy Dix trained some nurses um, to become to. Uh, nursing wasn't profession in America at that time, so Dorothy Dix essentially started nursing in America, and so then some of those women became physicians out of their experiences, and then there were other women who just inserted themselves into situations and later went on to become doctors. So it uh, it was a turning point for uh, American medical care. Yeah, and now you mentioned Dorothea Dix. Uh, she she appears in your book as as a real person, um, like Abraham Lincoln. She was the superintendent of the army nurses for the Lincoln Army, and she was particularly controversial, I think, because she had such a difficult job. I mean, there's quite a lot online about how she wanted her nurses to be plain and to be over the age of 35 and all that kind of thing. And she she re routinely sacked nurses that she personally hadn't hired. What was your impression of her after you've done all your research? Well, Dorothea Dix, I... She was 65 during the time of the Civil War, so she really came from the early Victorian era. And at that time, her moral values were such that to have women uh, in the same room as men they didn't know, disrobed and in bed, was was so um, radical to her thinking and, and verged on the amoral that in order to present as moral uh, to accept, to present nursing as a moral activity and endeavor that was for the good, she had to put these restrictions around it. Now, there's some conversation in history about the fact that nurses, quote unquote, nurses in the um, public hospitals in New York City were really prostitutes. So there was that kind of a, um, a rumor going around that she was trying to fight. 
she was just trying to keep control of something that turned out to be far more unruly than she expected. She was just older. She, she just had different values. And, and the war upended so much that she was having trouble coping with it, I think. Yeah. And also, of course, she would have met resistance from male doctors who objected to the women for perhaps different reasons. Yeah, the, most of the physicians were opposed to having uh, nurses around in the operating rooms, in the wards. Women had to be quite persistent in order to get into uh, hospitals in order to render care. So there was pre there was a lot of social prejudice that uh, was working on her side as well or against her. So she had to be very, she had to present this sort of rigid structure so that nobody could question what they were doing. Yeah, yeah. And you you mention on the book club study guides that you've got on your website because you speak to a lot of book clubs that you adhere to rigorous research standards in your work. What did that involve with Mary Sutter? Was there quite a lot of uh, archival material that you could access? Yes. Uh, you know, about six months into starting Mary Sutter, I realized how little I knew, A, about the Civil War, but two, about Civil War medicine. So I, um, I flew from my home in Washington State to Washington, D.C., where we have the National Archives. And I sifted uh, through a lot of original material, a lot of primary sources from Civil War hospitals. Um, then I went to the Library of Congress. And then I went to the battle. I went to Gettysburg to um, take a look at the field, to take a look at the battlefields and see where the hospitals were. I actually, when I wrote the book, I thought the book was going to end at the Battle of Gettysburg. I, it ended up um, ending at the Battle of Antietam. But I, I, um, I did not want to be inaccurate. I think that uh, there's, for me, there's a sort of a trust between the reader and the author that if I'm going to put in some actual historical fact, if I'm going to write something, I want it to be true so that it can actually feel, you can trust me to, uh, to learn something as you read my books. And at, I just was, um, I did probably more original research on nursing and medicine, on nursing in the Civil War um, than has probably previously been done. When I went to the National Archives in D.C., I opened books that were crumbling that I don't think anybody had looked at in a long time. Hospital ledgers, nurses' journals and notes, um, uh, you know, pay stubs and all kinds of things from the hospitals that had never actually been rounded up before. It was fascinating to see that there was still an untold story from the Civil War, which is remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. It must have felt like you were almost holding holy objects. <laughs> it did, actually. It, it very much did. I got a chill up my spine when I turned those pages and realized that I might be the first person in maybe since the war to have taken time with those pages. Yeah, yeah. Remarkable. And then with your second book, you moved far away from the devastation of war to artists in Paris, and I Have Always Loved You deals with the relationship between two Impressionist artists, Mary Cassatt and Edgar Degas. What took you there after such a, a deep and intense Civil War experience? 
I moved from the Civil War to Paris, and just for the reason that I was in Paris with my husband for the first time, and we were wandering from museum to museum, as you do in Paris, and somewhere, and I can't even remember where, I ran across the information that at the end of her life, Mary Cassatt burned all her letters to Edgar Degas and all his letters to her um, so that nobody could have access to them. And then, of course, the question becomes, why? Because she didn't burn any other letters. Letters from her to other people abound. So it was, um, that was a spark. Generally, it's, you know, unknown historical facts, little told historical facts that spark my novels. And, and this one just uh, uh, just made me very curious about their relationship. Yes. Um, they were also, there's a sort of theme that comes through your work because Mary and her fellow artist, Bertha, were very much judged by, through the lens of being women. Their work was sort of firstly looked at as work by women artists and yet they both carved out for themselves quite viable careers. Do you think that they had a certain acumen that was not fully recognised in their own time? You know, I don't, I don't think that's true. I think that, I think that Mary Cassatt um, was very well recognised. She was receiving quite good money by the end of her life. People were buying her pictures, um, helped along by her friend in New York who was buying them. And then uh, Bert Morisot, she died quite young, actually. She had this, she painted in a way that nobody else was painting. Both of them were painting what you might call women's stories. Mary Cassatt focused an awful lot on mother and children. Bertha Morrisot had this has this beautiful feathery light, gorgeous touch on women's sort of personal lives inside the inside the dressing room, inside the closet, looking in the mirror, and I I think they were appreciated in their time. I I I believe that that's the case. That's great. That's great. Mary in the book hints that both her and Degas, for them, art was their first love, and that there was almost no room for conventional romance. It was almost like a way of explaining why they never quite got to the point of perhaps publicly acknowledging. And you say in the book, but what she didn't understand was whether there was room for love in two lives already consumed by a passion of another sort. And that's got a poignancy about it. The, the truth of the matter is because she burned those letters it's very hard to um, to know exactly what went on between them. But if you study their, uh, and I did study where they were at any given point in time, the intensity of their relationship, how they were interacting with one another, there comes a point when Mary completely breaks with Edgar Degas for a period of time. And, and because he was not a but a good friend on who knows how many deep levels that that um terrible break uh resonated throughout the rest of their lives and she she on some level i don't think she ever forgave him and on another level i think she did because the end of his ed life edgar Degas lost his sight and he was blind and there was no one to take care of him and mary Cassatt came down to paris and went and found a niece and brought her 
the niece to Edgar Degas so that somebody would be taking care of him. There was a relationship of tremendous import uh, between the two, which has, unfortunately, because she burned a significant portion of uh, Impressionist history with those letters, um, will always remain sort of questionable. But, but the level of poignancy, I think that's a perfect way to put it, will never be questioned because she remained devoted to him for the rest of her life. Yes. Um, perhaps just clarify a wee bit there because the sound broke up. Um, you said that Mary broke with Edgar, but then she didn't forgive him. So what happened between them at that point, do we know? Yes, it's in the book. Um, Sorry, I didn't follow that right through. Okay, so um, she broke with him right about 1882, about a good five years. And that was because they were working together on learning how to make prints. Prints were huge in 1880s Paris. They were all following, um, they were following Japanese art and Japanese prints and they all became obsessed. And they worked together for a year uh, Mary Cassatt stopped all her other work while Degas did not. And he was committed to a project where they were going to uh, come out with um, a journal of sorts. It was called Le Jour et la Nuit, uh, The Day and the Night of Black and White Prints. And he just, he didn't allow it to go ahead and be published. So a year of her work was completely was completely taken away. Now, whether or not that had something to do with their emotional life as well, it's hard to say. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. And, and did they, you say that she came to Paris, they also moved geographically apart at, at some stage as well. Well, she got a, she had a, um, she got a villa in Menis-sur-Herbe, which is north of Paris. And, uh, she moved away. Yeah. Then the third book that's been the one that's most recently published, Winter Sisters, returns to Mary Sutter's world and family, but 15 years after book one, and it picks up the story of two young girls that are very close to Mary Sutter's family. You also do talk about how this one was sparked by your discovery of a historical fact that you found astounding. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So I was doing some research for another book. It was going to be on. It was going to be set in Russia before the Russian Revolution, and I was looking into women's rights in Russia. And uh, what what happened was I went down one of those Google holes that you go down. And I learned that in uh, 19th century America, in some states, the age of consent was 10, was 10 years old. And I was astounded. Uh, and so I stopped writing that other book and uh, started to look at uh, what the repercussions of that were socially. And it ended up with my needing a, a, a woman doctor for these two young girls and then Mary Sutter became the right choice because I had set the novel in Albany, New York, where Mary Sutter was from. Yes, and that one turn, you do have a, a, a rape trial and there's a lot of scenes which have a very contemporary feel that would be um, very recognisable to, to modern women. Uh, so 
a lot of your work has that women's agency in a male-controlled world sort of theme going through it, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. It, it turns out I'm obsessed with 19th century glass ceilings. I, I didn't really know that until I started writing the third book, and then I realized that that was my passion, and I, I like to do it because, you know, we're still we're still fighting those glass ceilings. Yeah, but that's a lovely way to put it, 19th century glass ceilings. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> um, you make yourself available to speak to a lot of book clubs, and I, I thought that people who are listening who are members of book clubs might be interested to know that through a service called Novel Network, which matches authors with book clubs, you make yourself available doing base type and Skype interviews. Um, what's the most commonly asked question that you get from your readers in those sessions? <laughs> Everybody wants to know what I'm writing next. <laughs> well, that's a compliment that to you. <laughs> well, it seems to be the question everybody wants to know. Um, um, a lot of times people ask me how I started writing because I switched careers from being a nurse to being a writer. Um, yeah. uh, so, um, yeah, generally, a lot of times people ask me what's real and what isn't real in the book because I blend fiction with nonfiction. And um, um, I'm always happy that they can't tell. Yes. What's, yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Look. Turning now to your wider career, away from focusing quite so much on the individual books, is there one thing you've done, perhaps more than any other, that's the secret to your success? Oh, um, well, I think, you know, it's really, it's really hard because I think even over the last eight years, the career of a writer has changed. You have to be more out there in the world. You have to be on Instagram and you have to be on Facebook and you have to all of that. And that's not my particular strength. And it, it has a certain sort of siren calling card that can just detract from doing the work. And I've just learned that if I put blinders on and ignore the world and just try to write the best book that I can um, and do the you know do the research as meticulously as I can and write the sentence as well as I can then I might be able to write a book of some merit um, I'm not one of those people who can live publicly and privately at the same time I have to kind of just try to push away the world so I can get the work done because it's essentially a private <laughs> it's a private activity you know, you need yeah. hours and hours and hours to do it properly. And if you can't shut the world out, then it's almost impossible to get done for me. Yes, anyway. yes. You've mentioned the Russian book and you, and you also started out studying Russian, I believe. Uh, that's perhaps what fed into the Russian book. Where did you your interest in Russia originally come from? Uh, you're going to laugh, but do you remember when Sputnik went up and everybody was worried about the Russians? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was in grade school then, and uh, the Defense Department in America started Russian language programs and select junior high schools, we call them here, seventh grade on. And uh, the French class was full. So I signed on for Russian 
And uh, I took six years until I graduated high school and then got a degree in Russian in college. It, you know, it's eating. I love language. And so I just um, fell into Russian. And then I ended up studying in Moscow for a month, my senior year of college. And then I, I thought it would be really interesting to try to write a book that connected Paris and Russia because there was an lo awful lot of back and forth during the Russian Revolution. The white Russians came from Moscow into Paris and set up lives. And so I started to do some research in that. But then um, Amor Tolls wrote uh, his fabulous book, A Gentleman in Moscow. Yes. And I thought, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to beat that one. So I let that good book go. <laughs> Right. Uh, it may still see life. Uh, we will be getting to that question of what are you working on next in a minute or two, so I'm not sure if that might see the light of day again. But we call this podcast The Joys of Binge Reading because we see it as providing inspiration for people who like to read, either binge read a series or follow an author and read all of the books that that author writes. Um, and I wondered if you ever have, well, you mentioned that you're a very uh, you know, keen reader, would you describe yourself as a binge reader? And who do you particularly like to read? Uh, if I find an author, I do actually binge read, and that sort of would probably describe my 20s, you know, running through all the English classics that I could possibly find. So uh, Jane Austen, name it, I read them one after the other, read every single book. Edith Wharton ran through all her books. Um Recently, I, I liked uh, the author, now I'm going to lose his name, of the Poldark series. I ran through the entire Poldark series. In yes, is it Richard Subwell? Richard, uh, I put it No. We'll look it up anyway. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't remember. Winston Graham. Oh, oh okay, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Winston yeah. Graham. Yeah, yes. So that, that that's it, you know, and then I try to read what's... Um, to me, it's actually kind of hard these days to find a really good series of books that I like to read. Um, for, I read Amor Toll's two books, but you know, he has, now he's working on a third one, um, Rules of Civility and A Gentleman in Moscow. If I like the author, I'll probably dip in. Yes. But I'd, ha I'd have to carry my computer over to my my bookshop with you now to talk about all the books. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, that's great. Those, we, those few that people can dip into. So if we were circling back, looking over the length of your career now from beginning to end, at this stage, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything? I, um, I, I can't, I can't. I don't think I should have started earlier because I didn't publish my first book until I was 55, 56, I think. I don't, I don't think I should have started earlier because I, for me, I needed to go out in the world and have some experience. And that was, for me, it was being a nurse in the critical care unit and bone marrow transplant units in Seattle. And living and traveling and raising my family uh, only gave me a kind of a, a wisdom that I like to draw on. I've seen an awful lot. So I can't imagine that starting earlier would have worked. Uh, and the amount of persistence that was necessary, I, I persisted despite what people, most people were telling me not to be a writer. So I just persisted, uh, not listening. I, I can't imagine changing anything. I got very lucky. I wanted to learn how to write books, and I did, and then I got them published. So I feel 
very lucky about the way my career went. And why did people tell you not to do it? Just because they didn't think there was going to be any money in it? or Oh, oh all those reasons. You know, for generally, it's how can you possibly make money writing books? And they thought the odds were against me. And I think, you know, people like to underestimate people all the time. Yeah, <laughs> it must have been very satisfying when book number one was really critically acclaimed, wasn't it? It was a very successful book in terms of the critics anyway. Yes, um, I, I, you know, I had a lot of head nods from the neighbours like, oh, so great you're writing a book, you know, just lots of patting on the head. And, and then when the book came out, not only critically, but also um, has sold well. New York Times bestseller list. Suddenly, I, nobody was patting me on the head anymore. That was, <laughs> that was very pleasant, I have to say. <laughs> That's good to hear. Um, what is next for Robin the writer? Are new projects that you might be working on now? Well, I have in mind a book that I've started, um, but I can't really talk about it because that always ruins a book for me it still has to germinate yes. in my mind and fertilize itself but I will tell you that uh, I went on a research trip to Scotland at the end of October oh fantastic so, yeah. yeah there's a little clue and it'll still be 19th century can we can we guess that much yes I can't seem to get out of that century <laughs> no. that's great and you mentioned the struggle with you know the public face of of being an author these days and so much expected in terms of marketing. Um, are you online at all and can readers find you online? Or where do, where do you like to interact with your readers? Well, you can, anybody can send me a note via my website, robinolivera.com. Um, I have an author Robin Olivera public Facebook site. Um, either of those works for me um and i'm happy to chat with people that's lovely that really is lovely robin look thank you so much for your time i'm sorry that the um the airwaves whatever they were let us down a little bit today with the with the uh funny reception but it was wonderful to talk thank you so much thank you jenny thanks a lot okay bye thanks for listening to the joys of binge reading podcast you can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. 
I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.